It's time once again for another episode of All That's Jazz, the podcast that explores everything in the world of jazz. And here now is your host, Alan Scott. Hello and welcome to another episode of All That's Jazz. Put your rubbers on your feet Comes a snowstorm You can get a little heat Comes love Nothing can be done Comes a fire Then you know just what to do Blow a tire You can buy another shoe Comes love Today we have the distinct pleasure of having the extraordinary and legendary vocalist Sheila Jordan as our guest. She is an NEA jazz master, and at an age that I don't believe as a gentleman I should repeat, but I'll allow that opportunity to fall on her shoulders, we are going to speak with this NEA jazz master about her latest release called Comes Love, which is a lost session from 1960. It's on Capri Records, and it features a previously unheard studio session by the one, the only, Sheila Jordan. Sheila, thanks for joining us on All That's Jazz. Thank you so much for having me, Ellen. It's a joy to be with you and to talk with you. First of all, thank you so much for your time. I know you're very busy and I'm impressed by that. You stay active as you have. When I grow up, I want to be just like you. <laughs> well, my thing is all I want to do is keep the music of jazz alive. Well, because you... I think it's very underrated in this in the United States. Mm -hmm. I've always called it the stepchild of American music. And it's the only music I believe that we can really call our own that we originated here yes, and, uh, and it's never been accepted. So I call it the stepchild of American music. You know, I, I'm, I'm with you as well. That's why I do this on the radio. It's why I do the podcast. Huh? Uh, this music has a legacy that needs to be kept alive. Yes. And we all need to do what we can. Yes, so true. And by the way, you know, I, I thought of, well, you know, why Why even do a, a, a an interview or a conversation with you? I thought maybe I should just invite you to sing Sheila's Blues, and that's the whole story right there. Yeah, right. <laughs> that would do it. That's recorded somewhere, I think. I know it's on YouTube where you did it in a, a performance setting. Yeah. yeah. Oh, hey. Do 
Well, I was born in Detroit, Michigan. Back in 19. In Detroit, Michigan. November the 18th, 19. Mickey Mouse's birthday. But my mother, she was only 17 years old and she couldn't raise me. So she sent me to live with my grandparents in a small common town in Pennsylvania State. You know, it's really a great piece and uh, it tells your whole story beautifully. Well, I've been very, very lucky to get all these awards. I just got one not too long ago, the Satchmo Award, the Louis Armstrong Satchmo Award, and that was quite wonderful. So I said, oh, my goodness, I'm getting all these awards. I wonder why. (laughs) I'm kind of surprised, but, you know, I'll take them, of course. Yeah, it's been wonderful. I've been very, very lucky, you know doing something that I really love. I've been doing jazz since I was 14 years old. I always sang as a little kid. I had a very, very terrible childhood background and very poor and no food most of the time growing up and no heat. And it was a very, very sad childhood. And my grandmother raised me, my grandmother and grandfather, because my mother was too young. She couldn't take care of me. And she worked in the factory in Detroit. So I grew up in Pennsylvania till I was 14. And then at 14, I went to live with my mother in Detroit. And uh, I always sang. I sang on the radio as a little kid, amateur hours, you know, anything, you know. And uh, actually, one time I sang on a radio show and I got a proposal of marriage. And I was about eight years old, and my grandmother sent a letter back to the guy and said, I think you better wait another 20 years. She's only eight years old, because they, they didn't tell your age. You just sang, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> anyway, um, that was always very funny. Well, you know, it, go ahead. Oh, but, but the, I was just going to say how I got into this music. I always sang. And there were great songs in in those days coming out. You know, the great Cole Porter, George Gershwin. They were great tunes, you know. And uh, those were the hits. So I was lucky to grow up during a time when the songs were such beautiful songs. But I do remember that I was always singing these new songs. And I remember after I moved to Detroit, I was going to Commerce High School and Cass Tech. I took a couple of courses in Cass Tech High. And there was a uh, hamburger joint across the street. And I went across the street to get my hamburger. And I always had a nickel for the jukebox. And this one day, I saw this one tune. And it said, Charlie Parker and his Reebop, not Beboppers, Reboppers. And I said, oh, wow, that looks interesting. I wonder what that's like. Mm-hmm. And as I said, I always had, did music, sang, but I didn't know what kind of music. Four Notes of Charlie Parker, that was it. I said, that's the music I'll dedicate my life to, whether I sing it, whether I support it, whether I teach it, whatever. That's the music I will dedicate my life to, and that's what I've done. I've stuck to that promise 
and that dedication. So that's how it all started. You know, it's interesting that you say it uh, and tell the story that way because it's such a seminal moment. It's such a key element in your life. And a number of people that are in the business uh, of music uh, have had maybe not as impactful a uh, story as you, but certainly there's that one moment where all of a sudden the light goes on. Yeah, yes. And so, so what was it, though, that, that really captured your heart and mind about that tune, Now's the Time? It wasn't the tune as much as it was the way Charlie Parker played it. incredible and that was it I don't was just something in his plan and you know I I was a bird chaser I chased Charlie Parker I moved actually my first boyfriend was Frank Foster in Detroit and we had a little uh, furnished room and we were together until he went into the the army the Korea he was drafted into the Korean War and when that happened, I moved to New York. I wanted to be near Charlie Parker. I yeah, I had to be near Birdman. And uh, I got to know him, and I got to be friends with him. And he was like my big brother. Charlie Parker was very special to me. You know, he would come to my loft. I had a loft on 26th Street right off of 8th Avenue, and I had a, a cot there. I had, like, these little cots, beds, sort of like. Because I'd put up all the new uh, the Detroit musicians when they'd come to town so they wouldn't have to pay for a, a hotel. It was so expensive. So they'd all stay at my loft. And uh, But Bird lived, not, Bird lived over by the park. You know, actually they named, the, his building has been, been claimed, what are they called, landmark. Charlie Parker, the building that he lived in is now a, a, a landmark, which is beautiful. They named the street after Charlie Parker called Charlie Parker Place. And the woman who was responsible for getting that to happen made a, an extra copy of that street sign, and she gave it to me, and I put it on my barn up here. <laughs> well, you know, so many people in the business have inspirations or influences in their lives, but mm-hmm. not everyone is as fortunate as you to not only have this influence of Charlie Parker to set you on your path, but you got to know him. Yes, I did, I did. And in Detroit, at that time, we had a club, before I moved to New York, of course. We had not a club, but we had a 
thing called the Greystone Ballroom, I think it was. But anyway, they used to give concerts, and it was great because kids could go because they didn't sell alcohol. And I remember Bird did a concert there. Mm-hmm. And uh, Billy Mitchell, who was a tenor sax player from Detroit and lived in Detroit, but toured with some of the jazz bands. He was very, very popular and, and a wonderful player. He told Bird on the side, hey, you got to hear these three kids sing, meaning me and the two guys that I sang with. So Bird came over and he said, I hear, understand you three kids sing. And you sing my, my, uh, my compositions. And we looked at each other. We were in shock because we were young, man. And Bird was our idol. And we said, yeah. And he, he said, well, I'd like you to come up and sing with me. We were stunned to sing with Bird. Oh, my God. So we got up and we sang with Bird and his tree. I think it might have been Duke Jordan, who I later married, mm-hmm. and uh, Max Roach and Tommy Potter. I think that was the trio, but I'm not quite definitely sure. Do you recall what it was that you sang? Yeah, we sang confirmation. Yeah, we sang confirmation. I'm pretty sure it was confirmation. And so after we sang, Bird came over to us after during the break. You know, we sang. He played another tune or two, and then he came over to us. He said, "You kids were wonderful." And he looked at me and he said, "And kid, you got million dollar ears." And I thought, million dollar? Oh, what is that? What are million-dollar ears? <laughs> mm. And uh, he said, if you ever come to New York, make sure you come and, and, and see me. I want to see you guys. And we said we would. Well, the guys never went to New York, but I did. Chasing Bird. I was chasing the bird. So, found him, and he became my best friend. He was so good to me. He even turned me on to Bela Bartok and Stravinsky. He brought records up to my loft. And then I had a little these little cots, as I said, in my loft that, that, you know, people who would come and visit, musicians, would have, you know, have a place to sleep. And I had one bed, that a little cot that I called Bird's Bed, because I got it for Bird. And when Bird was tired or he had a fight with his wife, he'd come up. And as I said, it was like there was no romance. It wasn't a romance, romance thing. He was like my big brother. He would come up and he'd take a rest on his little, on Bird's bed. <laughs> I had a parakeet that I taught to say, hello, Bird. Amazing. So one time Bird came up to the house and knocked on the door and I said, who is it? He said, it's, it's, it's Bird. I said, oh my God, I got Tories out of his cage. Wait till I get him in his cage, otherwise he'll bother you. He said, I don't care. I don't care, Sheila. I just want to rest for a few minutes. I said, okay, but he's going to bother you. So Bird came in, went over to his bed, his little cot, laid down, and of course, the minute you lay down anywhere, the bird is on you. Not not Charlie Parker, but the, the little parakeet. So the parakeet <laughs> flew over to Bird, landed on his knee, and said, Hello, Bird. And Bird looked around, he said, What are you, a ventriloquist? I said, No, 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 I didn't I didn't do that. That's him. That's Tory. I taught him how to say bird. Hello, bird. He said, oh, Sheila, that bird doesn't talk. I said, well, yes, he does. So he just shook his head and laid his head back down again. Going to take a little nap, and the bird landed on him again. 
but this time up near his mouth and said, hello, bird. And bird jumped up. He said, God damn, that bird does talk. <laughs> true story. <laughs> that yes. is a fabulous story, Sheila. Yeah, I, I, a true story, yes. Did, did so, you ever get a chance to record with him? Oh, no, no. I, I would be too, I'd have been too shy. I mean, I'm not saying I wouldn't have, but, you know, Bird didn't really record that much. I mean, he recorded, but, you know, only, you know, when it involved, I don't know. It was just, he had the cunning, ba baffling, powerful disease of drug addiction, and it is a disease. And so that kept him from doing a lot of things that he normally would have done, because Bird was very intelligent. He was brilliant. And uh, he was a genius. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, it was hard for him. So because this disease is, that he had is very, I've seen it kill many musicians. And uh, it takes over. So it's quite, I've never used heroin, but I've, I've been addicted to alcohol because I grew up with a family of alcoholics and I had that problem. But, I, of course, I've been sober now for, oh, 30, well, I've been in a, in a special program for 35 years, and I've been sober now for more than 35 years. I was on a dry drunk, as they call it. I didn't have any program or anything for eight years, but I got a little bit into using a little, snorting a little cocaine, but that, thank God I got a spiritual awakening that told me I, if I didn't give up using drugs, or using alcohol, I would have this gift of music taken away and given to somebody else. And it scared me to death. I said, oh, my God, that's the last thing I want to lose besides my daughter, you know, who I love very much. And I jumped up and I ran over to the phone and I called a special program, which, you know, we're not allowed to advertise. And I called them and she said to me, why would you try to do this by yourself when you're, we're here to help you? We're here to help you. So what do you, why do you want to do it by yourself? That made sense. I said, yeah, why do I want to do this by myself? And I've been with that program ever since. And as I said, that was 35 years ago. Well, that's so, very yeah, commendable. Good for you. Oh, yeah, it's a great, it's a great program. So when you moved to New York, uh, you uh -huh. got to finally chase the bird and catch him, so to speak. Uh, yeah. And... Then from there, what was the first entree into the jazz music world in New York for you? What do you mean? What is it that you started with, or when did you start performing, singing, uh, possibly oh, even recording in New York? Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, one thing I did is uh, Charlie Mingus and uh, Max Roach, I was looking for a teacher. And they took me to Lenny Tristano. So I studied with Lenny Tristano for a couple of years. And I met a lot of his students. Peter in for one, who was a one, is a wonderful bass player. That's where I first started doing just the bass and voice. Everybody thought I was out of my mind. <laughs> but I didn't, and he didn't. So uh, I studied with Lenny. I sang at Lenny's sessions on Saturday night. He'd have a session for all the students after their lesson. And then I started uh, going up to Harlem to Mittens after hours on the weekends because as I, I had an office job during the daytime typing, you know, to make a living to support myself. And that was before my daughter was born. 
So I did that. And then after my daughter was born, I found this club in the village called the Page Three. And it only paid $6 a night, but I paid $4 to a babysitter and took a taxi home because I wouldn't get out of there until 4 o'clock in the morning. I'd take the taxi home. But I didn't do it for the money. I did it for the music and to try out new ideas. And I was lucky because I had great accompanists, one of them being Herbie Nichols. I don't know if you ever heard of Herbie Nichols. Of course. Okay, so that's who I, who the piano player was. He spoke very little, you know, but he took me on a musical journey one night. I'll never forget it. I think I was singing When the World Was Young, and I left my body. I actually floated over my body, and afterwards I went over to him and I said, I don't know how you felt about what we did, but the ballad, I said, when we sang that, you played that ballad and I sang it. I said, I actually left my body. He said, so did I. That's all he said. So did I. It was amazing. So I worked at the page three off and on until, well, I probably still would be working there if they were still open or, you know, doing that. But they they closed. I think they had to close. For mm-hmm. what reason, I don't remember. Right. But anyway, it was a great club. They had like comedians and strippers and i mean you name it and then they had me and i worked there two nights a week monday monday night was jazz night so they didn't have the strippers or they only had the 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 um the blues singers and basically just the jazz jazz trio night and i worked there and that's where i met steve swallow because he was a bass player on that jazz night the only night he played there and that's where i met him and he was playing acoustic bass the other night, as I said, Herbie Nichols played, and then they called me a new note in jazz. A new note in jazz. That's what I was called. The lady, one of the ladies that ran the place named me that. So I worked there until they closed. Right. And that's where George Russell heard me. George Russell heard me there on a Monday night when he came down to, hear, to see Steve Swallow because Steve was doing some things with George's band. And he happened to stick around. He heard me. And afterwards, he came over after I sang. And he said, where do you come from to sing like that? I thought, well, I thought he was insulting me. <laughs> I didn't know what to think. And I said, I come from hell, man. That's where I come from. He said, well, can I go back and visit hell with you one day? I said, yeah, if you want to. And uh, he said, where is hell? I said, well, it basically started in Pennsylvania. So I took him back to Pennsylvania, and my grandmother was still alive. And so there was this club up, private club, where all the coal, coal miners would go to after they'd get out of work on the weekends, because that's what they did. They drank, they got drunk, and they sang. Hmm. But you had to be a member of this club. And my grandmother, for some reason, got to be a member. So she said, let's go up to the book. That was the name of the club. After we got there, you know, we were there for a few hours. I introduced her to George and so on and so forth. And so we went up to the Bund and there was nobody there. All the miners were out of work. They were on uh, strike. There was only one old coal miner in the whole place. And he was sitting at the bar. So my grandmother introduced introduced us like we were big stars. And I said to my grandmother, Mom, I'm not a star man. I'm, I'm not, George is a star, but I'm not a star. 
And there was an old upright piano over in the corner. Terrible, terrible, terribly out of tune. The old coal miner looked at me and said, So well, do you still sing You Are My Sunshine, Jeannie? I said, No, I no, I don't sing that anymore. And he said, Why not? And uh, George Russell said, Yeah, why not? So then George went over and sat down at the old out of tune upright piano and started to play it. And he played it very out, beautiful, but out. Well, my grandmother said, that's not the way it goes. And she literally pushed him off the bench. And she sat down and she played. And I sang with her, You Are My Sunshine, with my grandmother. And a few weeks later, after we came back to New York, George called me. He said, are you free? I said, well, I have to pick up my daughter from nursery school in a couple of hours. He said, well, could you stop by before? And I said, yeah. So I didn't know what he wanted. I went by. He said, I want you to hear something. So he said, sit down. So I sat down and he played this incredible, whoa, it was so beautiful. And then he stopped. He said, okay, sing. I said, sing what? He said, sing You Are My Sunshine. I said, are you going to play for me? He said, no, 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 sing it alone. I said, oh, no, I can't do that. He said, what do you mean you can't do that? You did it as a kid. Oh, that was different. And he said, sing you are my, sing it. I did. And that has been recorded. I don't know if you've ever heard it. I can't say that I have. George Russell, The Outer View. Okay. And you will find You Are My Sunshine. And it was originally, he wanted to call it a drinking song. Because hmm. all the miners drank and sang, that's what they sang. But he, they wouldn't let him change the, uh, the title. dedicated but it was dedicated on the recording to the out of minor out of work coal miners of pennsylvania that's the story well and you have such a distinctive style your phrasing is incredible and also uh, besides that i mean you you are an exquisite storyteller and that's what singing is all about oh yes well thank you for those beautiful compliments well, it's it's true, and obviously uh, many people feel the same because of the long list of uh, awards and recognitions that have been uh, offered to you through the years. 
including in 2012 uh, being named an NEA Jazz Master. Yes, yeah, so, I was shocked. <laughs> really shocked. I, I didn't know this until recently, but you were actually the very first vocalist that Blue Note Records ever did a release with, and that yes. was back in uh, 1963, I believe, uh, Portrait 62. of Sheila. I thought it was 62, but maybe, I don't, I thought it was 62. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Portrait of Sheila. Yeah, I was the first singer they ever recorded. They didn't record singers. They did, just wanted to record instrumentalists. Did they tell you why they chose no. you or what reason they had behind doing that? No, and I didn't ask. I didn't know. I was, you know, I, I didn't know. You know, all I know is George paid for this demo and he took it to, oh, the other person that he took it to, who was an A&R man at another recording company. I forgot the name of the, the record company. It was Quincy Jones. Prior to the 1962-63 recording yeah. on Blue Note, you did an album, uh, or at least a recording, back in 1960 called Comes Love, and that is the main topic of your release and part of our conversation today. Tell me about that, because it's it's a mystery in, in the sense that you don't have a very vivid recollection of it. I don't remember it at all. But it's such a beautiful recording, and in, in listening to it, it's amazing. Uh, and yet, really? how is it that th- there's no no attribution or, or no noted names connected to the ensemble that was with you when you did the I recording? I have no clue how it happened, when it happened, or who it was with. My gut feeling is it might have been with the trio that I worked with at the page three, which would have been Johnny Knapp on piano, Steve Swallow on bass, and Ziggy Woman on drums. But I'm not sure. I just don't remember. I have no clue. Well, it's it's it, it's a great story because you know you you recorded this at uh, the Olmsted Studios in New York and. The uh, recording itself was uh, supposedly designated toward being on uh, Chatham Records, and it wasn't until some people in Albuquerque who have a uh, a record uh, business, uh, they're in the business of selling vinyl and so forth, that they found this recording and then passed it along to Capri Records. I have no clue. None. So when was it brought to your attention that somebody had unearthed this recording? Just recently when I read about it. I don't know too much. I see, I'm, I, I really don't, I'm not into that too much. I should be, mm-hmm. but I'm not. You know, I, I don't take care of business. And especially at 92, I'm just, you know, I'm lucky I could even remember my name. So, <laughs> so in, in this lost recording, and it it had a beautiful picture of you as well, connected to the vinyl or the the pressed uh, recording. It's obviously somebody had it in mind to make this a uh, a big release at one point or another. I wonder why they didn't. Yeah, I, I, well, of course that could speak for why their Chatham Records is not still in business, or I, I don't know yeah. if they are. But the songs. I haven't heard of them. 
Well, the the song list is is really quite fantastic. Uh, you know, you, you sing a, a song that Sarah Vaughn recorded, I'm the Girl. I am the girl. Mm-hmm. You weren't certainly trying to emulate Sarah Vaughn uh, because no. you don't know. Probably at the time I didn't even know she recorded it because I didn't buy her records. The little bit of money I had went to instrumentalists. <laughs> Unfortunately, but obviously it was somebody must have given it to me at the page three when I was working at that little club down in the village. That could be. So what about one of the other tracks? Uh, It don't mean a thing if it ain't got that swing. Don't know. Don't mean a thing if it ain't got that swing. Don't mean a thing, all you gotta do is sing. Makes no difference if it's sweet or hot. Give that rhythm everything that you have got. Don't mean a thing if it ain't got that swing. Have you included that in your repertoire through the years, possibly? No, not too much. Not that I can remember. Mm-hmm. Well, then how about the, uh, the title track itself, uh, Comes Love? Yes, I do that. I do that. I have that in my bass and voice repertoire. What else is on there? Sleeping Bee? I do that every once in a while, yeah, with the verse. It's got a beautiful verse. How about they can't take that away from me? No. Hmm. Oh, I mean, I could, but I don't. Sure. On this lost recording session, there is uh, Billie Holiday's Don't Explain. Yes. Tell me about that for you. I don't know. I just love the lyrics. And, you know, I heard Billy sing it, but of course I wasn't going to sing it like, who can sing like Billy? And who would even want to try to sing like Billy Holiday, for God's sake? She was the greatest. I just, I like the melody. Usually when I hear a tune, the thing I listen for first is the melody. Not so much the lyrics, but the melody is the first thing that I, that appeals to me. If it's a great melody, then even if the lyrics are not that good, I can always change them. But a melody has to be really good. The music has to be really beautiful. So that's how I pick my tunes, by the melody first. And, uh, 
you know, I'd heard Billy sing the tune, but I felt, you know, that's Billy's life. I have my own story to tell, and that's that's what happened. When people listen to you, uh, Sheila, what do you want to be the takeaway in listening to you and your singing? I don't know. I never thought about it. Uh, just the enjoyment of the music and to hope that they will, you know, purchase jazz recordings, CDs, you know, and go out and listen to jazz music. That's my really purpose, is to just to keep the music alive. Now, let me ask you a question, and forgive me for asking this delicate question, but you were born in 1928, and that makes you 92. That's correct. How do you do it? What's the secret, or is there one, Sheila? No, the music. The secret is the love and the dedication to jazz music. That's what it is. That's the secret. And I don't think I'd be alive if it weren't for jazz music. I think I would have passed quite a while ago. Well, the jazz music and, of course, my daughter. But uh, this music has saved my life so many times. Is there an acolyte or is there some sort of uh, person that you are grooming to carry on the message? Not as, well, you know, there's a lot of the kids. I try to work with the kids that I teach in my workshops. I was lucky to get a workshop in uh, University of Massachusetts, thanks to uh, Dr. Billy Taylor and Max Roach. They brought me up there to teach the singers. And of course, and, uh, you're traveling around the country yes. uh, and also virtually, I would imagine, uh, in doing educational seminars. Yes. Yes. Well, and you're still performing, too? Of course. <laughs> I've uh, got lots of tours set up. <laughs> you do, because just in trying to get this interview together with you, <laughs> you've repeated over and over, I'm a busy girl. Uh, I can't do it this week. I can't do it that day. I know. Uh, I'm so sorry. No, no. That, that to me, uh, I'm impressed, and, and I... I uh, I praise you for it. Uh, it's it's absolutely stunning that you're doing this in the spirit and with the love, the passion, and the dedication that you have to this music called jazz. That's right. Thank you, Al. In the meantime, I will tell you that it has been a distinct pleasure and an honor to spend time with you today on All That's Jazz. Thank you so much, Alan. Thank you for having me. It's meant a lot. And well, I hope we meet again. I hope we meet in person. Well, I hope so, too. And I, I will tell you in closing that you are a blessed individual to have the life that you have had. But we have all been blessed by you to what you give to us. Thank you so much, Alan. Thanks for listening to this episode of All That's Jazz with NEA jazz master and vocalist Sheila Jordan. We'd like to thank Ben Sedrin for the use of Mr. P's Shuffle as our theme song. And visit us again next time for another interesting conversation on All That's Jazz. If you liked today's episode, please leave us a five-star rating on the streaming service you use. All That's Jazz is available on every major streaming app, including Podbean, Apple Podcast and Spotify, as well as Facebook and online at allthatsjazz.net.